Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From popular mechanics, scientists have discovered the one spot on Earth that feels exactly like Venus. And by that, they mean it's the single sunniest area in the world. Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little surprised you didn't say something here in Texas. I mean, I guess this historic heat wave makes everywhere feel like the sunniest (laughs) area in the world right now. Any other guesses? Because those were not correct. I mean, Death Valley is always a candidate, but I feel like it can't be in the U.S. Correct. It's a little bit south of us, specifically the Atacama Desert in Chile. Mm. So it's a 1,000 mile strip of land. It's west of the Andes mountain range, and it's one of the driest places on Earth, second only to some areas of Antarctica that haven't seen precipitation for, you know, like millions of years. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that a region as dry as the Atacama would get more than its fair share of sunlight. On average, the region gets about 308 watts of shortwave irradiance, which is the fancy word for daylight, per Mm. square meter. So that's nearly twice as much as Central Europe or even the eastern U.S. But when a climatologist at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands gathered measurements on the Chajnantor Plateau, which is home of the largest astronomical telescope project in the world, He detected periodic irradiance levels of 2,177 watts per square meter. So, yeah, quote, it's actually the radiation you would be receiving in summer if you were standing up on Venus. Well, almost. So according to the study, 2,177 watts per square meter is the irradiance you would expect to get hit with if you were standing about 79% of the way to the Earth as measured from the sun. So at the point in its orbit where Venus is furthest away from the sun, it only gets about 73% of the way to Earth. So Venus is still getting way more radiation. And of course, if you were actually standing on the surface of Venus, you would have bigger problems to deal with. <laughs> right. So how can a spot on Earth be this dang sunny? <laughs> it turns out that Atacama's clouds, however scant, are actually to blame. So Usually clouds block sunlight and reflect the light's radiation back into space. But under certain conditions, clouds can have the opposite effect and focus the sun's rays on the surface like a magnifying glass. Now, this article refers to the phenomenon as forward scattering. And the effect is particularly pronounced when broken clouds like cumulus, cirrus, or cirrostratus clouds form during the South American monsoon that takes place at the height of summer in the southern hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing is that death rays from space is not actually that much of a conspiracy theory, that like the sun really could <laughs> fry us individually, like on a really pinpoint li- of like, I fry that guy right there. Mm-hmm. It's God beams and <laughs> frying you. That's right. Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com, and it's titled, 
why Duncan and Lego rebrand succeeded, but X missed the mark. <laughs> I mean, I can think of a lot of reasons, but okay. Yeah. I can think of one major reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's been a few weeks, you know, since we've gotten to cover maybe some of the social media stuff, but like Twitter is no more officially. It is now X. And I do think it spells the end of the platform for real. I mean, I called it personally for myself back in November when he first bought Twitter. Wait, isn't that also the name of his kid? Is he is he actually illiterate and just like... <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a thing. He's obsessed with X. He X. actually originally... Whatever it was. Yeah, he tried to name PayPal X. He completely <laughs> tried to destroy PayPal by changing everything to X. But anyways, we'll get into it in case you haven't had any of the details. But like, this guy is literally obsessed with this idea. Idea he's had for like the last 20 years mm-hmm. and cannot let it go and is destroying everything including himself in the process mm-hmm. <laughs> so twitter has swapped the fluffy bird that used to symbolize the social media platform for a spindly black x The reaction has mainly been a mix of ambivalence, ridicule, and scorn. For the most part, (laughs) longtime Twitter users are unhappy at what they perceived as another unnecessary change that's eroding their enthusiasm for the social media platform. Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey signaled that he was finding the uproar overblown. He also got a huge payout from the purchase. So, um... The author is paying close attention to this corporate pivot because they're a scholar of design who researches social media and brand campaigns. That's Matthew Pittman, by the way. We can describe the new logo submitted by a Twitter user as a white-on-black sans-serif X consisting of two strokes. It's minimal and modern, and a stark departure from Twitter's icon blue and white bird. That shade of blue makes you feel calm and serene. Black conveys sophistication and mystery. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, okay. You know. Yeah, and I mean, like, you want to say, hey, you want to meet my friends I met on X.com? Yes, no, <laughs> no, you do not. That's why they're yeah. like, oh, it's the X conveys danger. I'm like, X conveys porn. That yeah. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that's what it conveys. <laughs> well, in some cultures, it also conveys wrong, like yeah. incorrect. Yes. I mean, like, every time I open the app and navigate anywhere, there's a giant X there. And I'm like, oh, right, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I think X means <laughs> close, close me. this app. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. <laughs> so when Dunkin' Donuts, for instance, trimmed its name to Dunkin' in 2018, the reception was mostly positive. Its customers seemed to get that the company wanted to move away from being closely associated with donuts and toward becoming a beverage-led on-the-go brand. And the rest of the article talks about, like, BP, American Airlines, some other brands. But I will say that I think X is special because there are no good reasons to do this. (laughs) It's like Crystal Pepsi. Yeah. (laughs) No good reasons. Well, uh, to be specific, there are no business reasons to do this. This is an ego reason. Yeah, because that's the thing. If you look at Dunkin' Donuts, it's like, okay, people have started to figure out donuts are unhealthy. We need to kind of pretend that was never part of it. KFC did the same thing. They used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken Mm -hmm. and they they made themselves KFC first and then there was a brief time where they were like, it stands for Kitchen Fresh Chicken. Everyone's like, no, we're Mm -hmm. not buying that. Mm -hmm. But they are very much KFC. Nobody Mm -hmm. calls them Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. But you're taking an existing brand and just sort of massaging it a little bit and for very good reason, like you said. It's clear the goal is not to keep Twitter as it is, right? Right. Like his whole AI company, which I believe he had titled X to begin with, it seems Mm -hmm. like this is either a takeover or a fusion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the legal company has not existed for a few months. Like, I think it has been gone since April. Man, that is a smart way to get out of that severance pay clause, huh? Yeah. 
Well, that's one of the more interesting theories I've seen, which is that like he's doing this so that he can basically do some insurance financial shenanigans because Twitter is bankrupt, but X is a new legal company. Correct. And so, you know, that's kind of where the article ends. But um, I view it as the end of Twitter in, in a really big sense, because like not only did they change the name to X, they changed tweet to post. I could go on this for like another 20 minutes, so I'll just stop there. But, um, yeah, consider yourself updated. X is now a thing, but it won't be for very much longer, in my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Next link? Next link. This is from the new Atlas. Push-button flying car now authorized by both FAA and DMV. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I feel like we, we jumped a few steps. Yeah. We don't need yeah. flying cars. We need push-button flying cars. Let's make it real easy. <laughs> Well, right, because when most of us are thinking about flying cars, right, depending upon our age, it's like the Jetsons car, Back to the Future car, or mm -hmm. even Blade Runner, or if you're really old, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Right. Right, that seamlessly convert from street to air mode. This version's like that, but it doesn't look like any of those. Hmm. There's a new version. It's a four-seat car the size of an SUV capable of traveling at highway speeds, and it is totally ridiculous looking. <laughs> Imagine a 70s helicopter with like the bulbous front end, but now it has four wheels. The back two wheels are on thin, tall stilts with four wings, six propellers like a drone. And in drive mode, the wings are swept back, but in fly mode, all four wings extend. And it only runs at $789,000. It could be yours. Oh, okay. Wow. But keep in mind, it's just a prototype. So unless things go perfectly, it probably won't be yours. It yeah. converts to an eVTOL, so vertical takeoff and landing. And at a touch of a button, it's a transitioning to an eVTOL aircraft with the tilt-capable propellers. The tilting forward gives it a 250-mile range and speeds up to 150 miles an hour. So, and apparently it glides so well that you can take off and land on a runway, but it is meant to do vertical landing because most of us don't have runways in our backyard, except for John Travolta. Right. Yeah. This is for someone who clearly has some kind of compound that can provide the clearance and the money to pay for this. Yeah. I mean, thing. it basically sounds like a Cessna replacement. If you're the kind of person who had a private plane, now you could have one of these instead. And then drive it to your office. Right. That's the idea. <laughs> Yeah, ASKA, A-S-K-A, the company behind the project, hasn't shown any footage yet, which is a bit sus. Yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> what are you hiding? <laughs> but the company says it's already conducting flight testing after receiving a certificate of authorization and special airworthiness certification from the FAA. This is not a full type certificate allowing for commercial sales. It's more of a limited one-off green light. All right, fly your prototype. Right. Yeah. We'll let mm -hmm. you personally risk your life. You probably won't blow up any houses in the right. area. And there's been a few of those. They're not the first to do that. But what makes them special is it is the world's first flying car to receive authorization to drive on public roads from the DMV. Hmm. What kind of bribe must have taken place? Asuka says his prototype A5 has successfully conducted more than 300 miles of road testing around Silicon Valley with a DMV number plate. I do hope it's a novelty plate. Oh, it's gotta be, surely. <laughs> 
And much like the FAA airworthiness certificate, this is probably conditional one-off rather than an endorsement that the company is ready to start manufacturing street legal cars. Mm -hmm. But it did require ASCA to take this crazy-looking machine down to the DMV office and get it certified. (laughs) The company has already taken more than 60 pre-orders. That's about 50 million in pre-sales. According to the company's website, the A5 is, quote, on target for 2026 commercialization subject to certification approvals. Yeah, we'll see about those certifications. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's a good reason most flying cars are three-wheeler type trikes that Mm. can sneak through street approvals disguised as motorcycles. Mm. If you want to sell a car that people can go out and drive on the road, it has to meet automotive safety standards, which means things like crash testing requirements, crumple zones. Listen, those things cost $800,000. You can't be (laughs) crashing one of them just to find out. (laughs) Exactly. But they had to do it to a Bugatti. Oh, well. (laughs) And as far as aircraft are concerned, all that safety stuff is super heavy. So there are reasons why there are also very few other eVTOL companies working on the wing transition aircraft. Most of them that I've seen have been just straight up drones. You got to think it'd be more financially feasible to just pay the government to change the car safety regulations. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying, like, from a business standpoint. (laughs) Right. To add an exclusionary measure in there. Yeah. Yeah. Just say Uh this one doesn't have to be safe. It's fine. Right. Because it flies. So it's not necessarily a car. It's a new thing. Mm -hmm. And we need to give it a new definition. And that new definition will take a lot of lawyers, a lot of money, a lot of time. (laughs) So even though they do have certification, this is still really far. We don't have to worry about it probably within the next five, 10 years. Yeah. I I, I don't plan on living that long. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff is not going to be anybody's reality except maybe my grandchildren. So that's fine. Uh-huh. Whatever. Enjoy your venture capital output. <laughs> I don't care. That's <laughs> kind of what it seems like this is. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. Next link. Next link. All right. Next up, we have an article from Euronews called Dogs in this French town will have their DNA tested to crack down on poo problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I love it. (laughs) The French town is called Bézier, and local mayor Robert Menard told France Blue Radio that people in the town were fed up with residents and visitors leaving dog feces on the pavement. The city's cleaning service picks up more than a thousand pieces of dog do every month. And he said, quote, we need to penalize people so that they behave properly. So the way it's going to work is that dog owners will be required to carry a genetic passport, which can be issued either by their personal vet or they can get it done for free through a saliva sample taken at public clinics paid for by the city. The DNA profiles will be stored in a searchable registry. And when dog poop is found on the street, it will be tested and connected to the dog who did the deed. So if you're caught leaving your dog's poop on a public park or sidewalk, you will be issued a fine of 122 euros. And on the flip side, they will be spot checking random dog walkers to make sure they're carrying their genetic passport. If not, that's a 38 euro fine. Hmm. So the article notes that similar schemes have already been trialed in parts of Spain, Tel Aviv and London, But it doesn't mention how effective the policy has been for those cities. Mm. So I tried to look it up for myself. And y'all, I fell down a rabbit hole of dog poop (laughs) DNA testing. That is a weird rabbit hole to go down. Yes, because it turns out there's truly not a lot of information on how the program has been working for these large cities. 
the one city that had given a follow-up report seemed to be coming at it mostly from a question of revenue generation rather than reducing dog mm. poop. And they said they had spent around 3,000 euros on DNA tests and had collected around 3,400 euros in fines. Ooh. So the program was a success from that yeah, standpoint. Yeah, that ROI is killer. But what there was a ton of information on was small individual communities implementing this kind of program. There is apparently a business called Poo Prints. And if you own an apartment complex or run a homeowners association, you can make it a part of a lease agreement or a deed restriction that the pets in that neighborhood have to be registered. And God. then Poo Prints will take care of all the testing and maintaining the registry for you. Some Poo Prints customers also elect to pass on the cost of the DNA test to the residents as part of the fine. So it ends up being basically free to them. Wow. And of course, the Poo Prints site is going to be putting their best foot forward. But based on their testimonials, <laughs> this kind of program seems to already be in place in hundreds of neighborhoods around the U.S. Huh. And the key here is that the apartment complexes and HOAs have a certain amount of legal power that the cities ironically do not. That's part of why this program is only now getting implemented in the French city of Béziers. They tried to start it back in 2016, but the local courts ruled that forcing residents to reveal their dog's DNA was a violation of civil rights. <laughs> so one city in Israel got around the same problem by making registration entirely voluntary, but then rewarding residents when their dog's poo was found in the proper bin in the park. And I'm a little skeptical about how useful that is because the rewards they mentioned were pretty weak. It was like a dog accessory or a little bag of dog food. But it is technically another angle to pursue if you can't get the courts to agree to mandatory registration. But in Bézier's case, under local law, it only went to the courts because someone challenged the proposed policy the first time around. And when they raised the issue again this year, no one did. So it's finally <laughs> able to move forward. The French mayor noted that there will be some leniency for tourists and visitors who don't normally live in the town and might not know the law. And there will also be a three-month grace period where residents will be notified that they've been caught but won't be fined yet. Ultimately, however, they do expect that this program is going to dramatically reduce, if not entirely eliminate, their dog poo problem. And if Poo Prince is telling the truth, it works. Like, people just 100% stop letting their dogs poop everywhere when they're absolutely going to get caught and fined for it. Or if they had, like, a... We return it back to the owner. There you go. They just <laughs> mail it back to you. <laughs> you forgot which, this. Uh, which, side note, my uh, boss at one point in time, a long time ago, apparently there was a website where you could mail poo to people. That seems And illegal. he got one of those. That's gotta got to be like a hazard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the early days of the Internet, you could get away with anything like mm -hmm. that was. <laughs> yeah, but this was like eight years ago. Wasn't that long? Ago. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, that's just monetizing your dog assets. All right. <gasps> You've got a dog. Your dog is going to poop. Get someone to pay you to profitably ship it somewhere. I mean, that's a perfectly viable business model. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. We're going to take a bit of a departure via salon and talk about a type of pollution that is the easiest pollution to fix. So why aren't huh. we doing it? Any guesses? Money? I mean, <laughs> like... Ignorance? No, close. It's light 
pollution. And listen, it is an existential threat that belongs in the same category as climate change, if you listen to experts, which I know is getting increasingly less popular. Okay, so the thing is, our night sky is rapidly disappearing. At our current rate of dumping excess light into the world, a child born today who could see 250 stars right now from their nearby night sky will only be able to see 100 stars from that same spot on their 18th birthday. And it's not just a light pollution is ruining my stargazing experience. It has a devastating effect on the environment. Light pollution can disrupt firefly mating rituals. It lengthens pollen season, which means worse allergies. It makes Hmm. navigation more difficult for a bunch of different species of wildlife, whether it's monarch butterflies to Atlantic salmon. And listen, if you don't care about the earth or critters, it's not good for us either. Too much artificial light has been linked to an increased risk of depression, while Hmm. electronic devices can negatively impact our sleep. So there is a group called Globe at Night. They regularly monitor the sky. These are citizen scientists from all over the world that are united by this common goal to measure light pollution. And this group discovered that the night sky, on average, is getting 9.6% brighter every year. Hmm. And this is a problem that exists entirely as a result of human behavior. So it would be quite easy for people to reduce light pollution, not only for our own sake, but for animals and the environment. Andrea Bonasoli Alcati, an associate professor of biology at California State Polytechnic University, says the causes of light pollution are many, all related to our planet's global changes over the last two centuries, and especially over the past few decades, like the increased reliance on billboards and illuminated signs. I'm looking at you, fancy pixel trucks that are literally just driving around high-def TVs with advertisements mm. on them, right? Yeah, which are a distraction on the road, too. Oh, yeah. Those are horrible. Patently right. Well, and the creation of LEDs makes lighting mm-hmm. more efficient electrically. Yeah, so, so much cheaper. More in. Yeah. Yeah, so we're getting a longer. whole lot more of it. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. So. What can we do? Well, Travis Longcore, an adjunct professor of environmental science and engineering at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, is quick to offer some ideas. So do things like turning the lights out when you don't need them. Some people learn this growing up, but, you know, it applies to the outside, not just the inside. So limiting the amount of what this scientist refers to as vanity lighting. No, I leave the lights on in the other room because there's ghosts in the other room. <laughs> uh, well, not, hey, listen, listen, that's legit. You can't argue okay. with that. Right. right. Well, this is, again, mostly outdoor lighting, right? Some people refer to it as architectural lighting, but like lighting up the tree because it looks good. Because a lot of people will put in lights that they just shine off in all directions that end up just being glare and light collection. It creates a lot of different problems. Mm-hmm. And overall, it comes down to common sense. Like Even if people do not reduce light pollution for the environment, they have many reasons that can be quite personal. Like if you are overlighting your outside at night, you're basically just making shadows darker. So often people will do this on an individual level for quote unquote security lighting, but you're just making shadows darker. And that makes the people within those shadows essentially invisible. (laughs) So you may catch it on your ring light, 
but you're not going to see it in person, which I guess lends credence to Brad's theory about ghosts. Well, and look, sometimes you got to call Batman. Like, you need to be able to shine a light aimlessly into the sky sometimes. And I'm not, I'm going to die on that hill. (laughs) Even then, it is an a la carte situation as needed, not year round. And as for outdoor lighting, people who care about wildlife, they should be using longer wavelength light. So the type of light matters. You want to look at yellow and red light. I think red lights have started to get a lot more popular because they attract less bugs, even if they look a little Mm. demonic. But like, The old yellow, you know, old school type of light is a lot better than these new full spectrum or even blue light. And that's because of the properties of blue light. So Longhorn told Salon that, quote, I think it's an important issue to work on the solutions because they are so win-win that if we can't do this to simply not waste light, then we will have failed the fundamental test of progress and change into the next 50 years, which... I think is being optimistic because I think we've cleared that hurdle quite readily already. Yeah. So Right, because have you seen that new ball in Vegas that they just made? Oh, Vegas mm-hmm. is absolutely yep. the worst. <laughs> and that points to the larger problem. Like we've been talking about individual issues. A lot of this can't be solved with individual moves, just like recycling, right? Because the crises yeah. we are experiencing are broad and systemic. So Individual actions are important for us to match our choices with our values, but we can't do this alone. So really, really passionate about this topic. I am actually looking to DIY print some Travis County Audubon yard signs just to educate my neighbors, like in case you didn't know, here's the thing Mm -hmm. that you can do. And I don't know, maybe see some stars again. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com, and it's titled Bizarre True Story. Physicists once put a ferret in a particle accelerator. No! Why? Now, I I assure you, normally these articles end pretty poorly, but uh, this is a little more cute than we expected. So (laughs) just a little salve of a spoiler, I guess. All right, good. (laughs) So decades ago, regulations for laboratory maintenance were not quite as stringent as they are today. This, we assume, is at least partially what led the great minds at what was then the U.S. National Accelerator Laboratory, now Fermilab, to an ingenious solution for cleaning a particle accelerator back in 1971. (laughs) No. Yeah, it was February. The main ring particle accelerator at the NAL's Messon Laboratory was fresh out of the wrapper, and physicists were keen to start running it through its paces. This $250 million piece of equipment consisted of a four-mile tube along which they hoped 1,014 powerful magnets would help steer and accelerate protons to energies up to 200 billion electron volts. By late April, things were not looking quite so rosy. Six days after the final magnet was installed, two of the things were found shorted to the ground. This was no trivial matter. Most of the magnets were around 20 feet long with a weight of 12.5 tons. It took some time to replace the two magnets, but then it happened again and again. In total, the facility had to replace around 350 magnets. Eventually, the team traced the problem to one of contamination. Tiny scrap metal shavings had been left in the accelerator. The accelerator tube had the diameter of a tennis ball. This posed a dilly of a pickle. How to get the shaving out? Physicist Ryuji Yamada proposed pulling a magnet through the tubes. Not a bad idea, but who would do the pulling? British physicist Robert (laughs) Sheldon, who was a very inventive fellow, hit upon a solution. In his part of Yorkshire, hunters used ferrets. Ferrets are weasel-like mammals who enjoy going down tunnels and flushing out rabbits. 
a ferret would not hesitate to run down the inside of the stainless steel <laughs> tube, even if that involved a long journey into the unknown. Furthermore, it would be a sort of green solution to a technical problem, and everybody liked the idea of that. <laughs> the ferret's name was Felicia and was fitted with a diaper to prevent defecation-related particle accelerator mishaps and a leather harness. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, then the researchers trained her to travel through dark tunnels while wearing the harness, which had a strong string attached to it. She would scamper from one end of the 300-foot sections of the tunnel to the other, receiving a reward of chicken, liver, fish heads, or hamburger meat once she completed a section. Those are high-value treats. Yeah. I don't know. I think some of them are a lot more high-value than others. You <laughs> offer me a hamburger versus a fish head? I mean, come on. You're not a ferret. Yeah. That's true. I'm not a, I'm not a ferret. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An engineer at the end would tie a cleaning fluid-soaked swab to the string to be drawn back to the tunnel by humans at the other end to collect detritus. And apparently it worked pretty well. The scientists could clear out the tunnels with a little fuzzy help. Over time, however, their needs exceeded Felicia's capabilities and engineer Hans Kautsky developed a new solution. He attached mylar discs to a flexible cable that was pushed through the pipes using compressed air and Felicia retired after a dozen or so runs. It also turned out there were multiple reasons for the magnets failing and metal shavings were not the prime culprit. Uh-oh. <laughs> <So>, After all that. <laughs> yeah. Yamada recalled, the main reason was poor quality control in making joints for the water-cooled copper conductors. The mating surfaces of a butt-weld joint were sometimes not completely parallel and the resulting joint might have a small wedge-shaped gap. Later, hmm. improved welding with an inserted pipe was used. And Felicia remained beloved by the NAL scientists, but unfortunately would not live long to enjoy her retirement. She passed away in May 1972 from a ruptured abscess on her intestinal tract. So may she be enjoying a much well-earned hamburger meat in the ferret afterlife or fish head. Yeah. Yeah. Bye, Felicia. Go clean it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I do appreciate the green approach. Glad they put a diaper on it. Don't know what they did about all the hair. I gotta say, I've seen some pet ferrets. They smell. They smell mm, really awful. bad. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just a function of like the owners were lazy and weren't cleaning no. them as often as it's they the could. It's the animal. They I have think, they have scent yeah. glands. They are meant to stink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now your particle accelerator stinks. Just <laughs> well, but it has no metal shavings. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a little RC car to put in there. I'm sure they had yeah. RC cars in the 70s. I feel like they were just excited to use a ferret. They had better <laughs> solutions at hand. They were just like, but what if? Yeah, because what happens if you run out of battery or if it gets stuck like halfway down this thin little tube? Well, then you train Felicia to go That's get it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you can always bring in more ferrets, you know, just train the ferret to get another ferret. It's fine. There you go. It's like, you get an army of them. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include NASA unveils an X-plane they hope will save Earth, why do spiders have eight legs, and what would happen if we stopped fishing. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.